0: Thank you. Thank you all very much for coming. This is the uh, second lecture uh, of a two-lecture series on Pranab Bhadhan's uh, new book, Awakening uh, Giant's Feet of Clay, um, about India and China. And uh, it's fallen on me, and it's a great pleasure that it has fallen on me, to introduce uh, this second lecture. Um, I've known Pranab now, we were just working it out, but at least 35 years. Um, During my first visit to India, he was extremely helpful in uh, helping us choose the village that we've been studying for 35 years. So uh, it's a special pleasure for me, Pranab, to welcome you to the LSE. Pranab is a BP Centennial Professor, and he has um, been a professor at Berkeley for more than 30 years. He edited the Journal of Development Economics uh, for nearly 20 years. He's one of the outstanding development economists of our time, and like all good development economists, his breadth is not just economics, and it covers all kinds of other subjects as well, which, uh, as I'm sure you saw yesterday and will see today, are crucial to understanding uh, where uh, India and China have come from and where they're likely to go. So uh, we're in for a a treat uh, this evening and I'm looking forward to it very much. If I could just say a little bit about the uh, mechanics of this evening, well the first part is to turn off your mobile phones. Um, If you would like to buy a copy of the book, if you would like to buy a second copy of the book if you bought one yesterday, they will be available uh, outside at a uh, heavily discounted price. Uh, I don't know what the price is, but I'm sure it's fantastic value. And um, there will be a reception on the eighth eighth floor after uh, this lecture. And at some point, perhaps after 15 minutes or so, the book buying and signing will migrate up to the eighth floor to give Pranab a chance to join in um, the reception you're all very welcome at least I trust you're all very welcome at the, uh, at the reception um, that will, will finish just before uh, 8 o'clock um, and uh, we hope um, after Pranab has spoken there will be about uh, 25 minutes to half an hour for interaction and discussion so thank you all again for coming thank you in particular Pranab uh, for coming and welcome it's a great pleasure to have you with us
1: Thank you, Nick, for those generous remarks. As Nick uh, pointed out, uh, my friendship with him goes back long long years. But also I'm particularly pleased, apart from my friendship and my admiration for Nick for many years... uh, he is one of the very few people who are experts in both of these countries that I'm going to talk about today, China and India. Um, so uh, uh, this is a point of special pleasure to me. And thank you all for coming uh, after a long day. Uh, this, um, uh, I'm surprised that the LSE events start so late. Um, uh, uh, by, by this time, people must be tired. Um, I was also... Uh, going to say uh, uh, yesterday as well as today when uh, today when um, Nick uh, pointed out I'm the BP Centennial Professor, I was going to tell uh, them, uh, Nick and Stuart yesterday, that don't tell it to my American colleagues now because <laughs> BP is not a particularly popular name at this point. Um, so maybe I should start by just spending two minutes for those of you who were not here yesterday uh, what I said, the kind of things I said yesterday. Um, Yesterday most of my talk was essentially about quantitative uh, economic assessment. So I had some data, I had some charts and the topics that I discussed were uh, By the way, before that, let me mention that I started by saying something that I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about the impact of these two economies on the rest of the world. I'm talking about the lives of people inside these two countries, huge countries, and under what structural constraints they operate. So then I went on to discuss, I started with the discussion of the growth rate, economic growth rate, and then composition. Of growth in productivity, sectoral composition particularly. Then I went on to discuss poverty, inequality and environmental damages and I went on then to discuss financial and fiscal issues and from fiscal issues I went on to discuss one of the sources of big differences in the two, between the two countries. Something that strikes any visitor to the two countries is the dazzling difference in the physical infrastructure of the two countries. And the last thing, the last topic that I discussed is a very important difference in the pattern of industrialization in the two countries. China started, uh, now it's China is moving away from that pattern China is graduating now more to technical and capital-intensive industries, but China started with a pattern of labor-intensive industrialization which helped a lot of poor people. India's success stories so far are primarily in not labor-intensive industrialization, primarily in skill-intensive and capital-intensive industrialization. And as I mentioned, this has some impact on poverty reduction. Today, unlike yesterday when I was, it was largely uh, quantitative economic stuff I'm going to talk primarily about political sociology and political economy. In particular three topics as I announced at the end of yesterday's class the first topic I'm going to, I'm going to discuss is the nature of capitalism as it is developing in the two countries Second topic would be the state business relation between the two uh, in in both of these countries. And in that context, I will try to put China and India in the context of the discussion in the political sociology literature about the developmental state. And the third topic, uh, I hope I have enough time for that because that is the more important topic I'm interested in. Is governance and accountability so I'm going to go go ahead and um, uh, actually I'm going to go to this just one minute. that's okay I think I can thank you um, I have PDF and I'm actually since I'm going to skip some lines etc I'm, I'm just went out of full screen and going to just go up and down sometimes. Um, So let me, this is where where I started uh, last time. So let me skip
0: it. do you want to entertain us without the thing?
2: (laughs)
1: Yes, (laughs) why not? I I can start dancing if (laughs) you want. So on the nature of capitalism, I start first with India. Now. There's not much to speak about the nature of capitalism. India uh, has a thriving uh, business sector for quite some time, private business sector, for many years. Thank you. And in the last two decades, the private corporate sector has thrived in India, even though in the formal sector, state-owned companies still account for about 40% total sales. I mentioned yesterday the informal sector, unlike in China, informal sector in India is extremely large. Even now it employs about 94% of people. Even if you take out the agricultural sector, more than 80% of people in the non-agricultural sector in India is in the informal sector. But there is a vigorous corporate sector And the informal sector is now developing supplier links with the formal sector, and the communication revolution, particularly the mobile phone, has strengthened those links. The grip of the corporate oligarchy in Indian political life, and the media, the grip in the media as well, is quite evident. And similarly, it's evident, if anybody reads Indian newspapers, in the state allocation of access to land monopoly rights on natural resources, or telecommunication spectrum. Uh, There have been a lot of comments on the way these are allocated in India, and how the corporate sector is extremely influential in that respect. However, let me move on to China, because given the ideology of the party, the Chinese development of capitalism is the more interesting story. Now while the chapati retains the monopoly of power, the economy obviously is no longer a command economy, with market mechanism being the major allocator of resources. About 95% of consumer prices are now market determined, though the state still controls some prices in some key sectors. But is the economy primarily capitalist now, with private owners of capital providing the dominant mode of organizing social and economic life through their drive for profit making and accumulation the answer is ambiguous now first of all how quantitatively important is private ownership now in fact nobody really knows the answer this is particularly because it's very difficult to classify Chinese farms by their ownership or even their control rights in in the case of many farms It's very difficult to find out where the state control rights end and the private control rights begin. In a recent book, uh, Huang Yasheng, it's called Capitalism with Chinese Characteristics. In that book, he shows how convoluted the ownership structure is even in China's most famous private sector farms, Lenovo many of whose computers we are using, and Huawei technologies. Even there, nobody really knows what is control, uh, what is co- which control rights are private and which are public. Some evidence suggests that private sector now contributes over half of industrial value added, though not of fixed capital investments. The convoluted nature goes back to its history. The convoluted nature of ownership is part of the legacy of the development of the Chinese private sector. As late as 1988, private farms with more than eight employees were not permitted. Many of op- private farms operated below the radar and used various subterfuges and covert deals with local officials as they adapted themselves to the changing permissible mores. Some of them, as I think I mentioned in a question and answer session yesterday, some of them used to be called red hat capitalists, sometimes hiding under the facade of local collectives. Only since the, 90s, since the late 90s, they have started taking off their red hat coming out of the closet. Many of the smaller SOEs, state-owned enterprises, have been privatized now. In fact, many of the township and village enterprises, as I mentioned yesterday, have been largely privatized. Currently about one third of the private entrepreneurs are members of the party. Membership helps them to get state finance and more protection and legitimacy. I might add something here, Uh, contrary to popular impression, the Chinese Communist Party is not primarily a workers and peasants party anymore. I saw some data, 2005 membership data, of, of the total membership of the Chinese Communist Party about 29 percent are workers and peasants. The large majority are not workers and peasants, large majority are professionals, businessmen and college students. Of course it is well known that many of the entrepreneurs are in fact friends or relatives of party officials. Many SOEs, state-owned enterprises, are controlled by powerful political families. One of China's most respected senior economists, Jing Wu, has described all this as crony capitalism. There is a new political managerial class which over the last two decades has converted their positions of authority into wealth and power. The vibrancy of entrepreneurial ambitions combined with the arbitrariness of power in an authoritarian state has sometimes given rise to particularly corrupt or predatory forms of capitalism unencumbered by the restraints of civil society institutions. And let me give you a striking example of this lack of restraint of civil society institutions. In the recent real estate boom in cities where the commercial developers in cahoots with local officials have bulldozed old neighborhoods. Residents waking up in the morning to find that their house has been marked for demolition with a Chinese character meaning raise, painted in white with hardly any redress or adequate compensation available. At least in some areas I've seen stories of that kind. The state, of course, is still predominant in producer goods sectors transportation, finance, the state controls some of the more profitable high monopoly margin uh, companies. But at the same time, I should point out and in fact, this is a contrast with India the Chinese large state owned companies are are often highly commercialised in recruiting professional managers, broadening their investor base and shedding their traditional social and political obligations. Many SOEs do not conform to the usual stereotypes about SOEs. In contrast, Indian SOEs are often less commercialized and their corporate restructuring less advanced. Even though India is also making some progress, it's less on, on average than in China, in corporate restructuring. So an important conceptual question arises here. When an enterprise is managed on essentially commercial principles, but the state still owns or has controlled rights over a large share of the assets, is this a capitalist enterprise? Some people may describe it as capitalist if the principle of shareholder value maximization is followed, but then this principle is not quite follow- always followed in capitalist countries either, say in particularly in Japan or Germany. Others may point out that as long as substantial control rights remain with the state, which is subject to potentially arbitrary political influence, the internal dynamic logic of capitalism is missing. In late 2008, when China's richest man was arrested, the then richest man, he no longer is, was arrested, many thought that his biggest crime was that he was getting too powerful for the political leader's comfort, I say shades of Putin's Russia. Nevertheless, it is probably correct to say that while the party can undo individual capitalists at short notice, it will be much more difficult for the leadership today to unravel the whole network of capitalist relations. Whole network of capitalists and embedded, uh, overlaid with various vested interests and knotted with Guangxi ties. Individual entrepreneurs have often a clientelistic relationship, but the state is now sufficiently enmeshed in a profit oriented system that has been identified with legitimacy enhancing international economic prowess and nationalist glory, a tiger that the political leadership may find difficult to dismount. Even at the local level, the central leadership now finds it difficult to control its own local officials who, in collusion with local business, commit some of the worst capitalist excesses in land acquisitions, in product safety violations and in toxic pollution. Now I'm going to talk a side issue of the nature of capitalism in China again. So even if the Chinese economy is described as capitalist now, people often forget the legacy of the earlier socialist period in providing a good launching pad. And I'm going to now catalog some, uh, some of those issues, the legacy issue of the earlier period. In Beijing, uh, one day I remember talking to a very well-known leftist historian and he was kind of lamenting that he said, you know, in China today, for younger people, the 20th century started in 1980. Uh, So he was essentially saying that as if everything before what happened is dark. So let me point out some of the positive effects. I mean, we all hear about the problems that the earlier period caused both in China and in India. Let me point out some of the positive effects of socialist legacy uh, in China. First, it is extremely important compared to India, a solid base of minimum social infrastructure, broad-based education and health for workers. Second, a fast pace of rural electrification that facilitated growth of agro-processing and rural industrialization, all this started in the earlier period. A highly egalitarian land redistribution of cultivation rights provided a minimum rural safety net which made the adjustments of economic reforms easier. A system of regional economic decentralization. This is an extremely important institutional issue. China decentralized but then kept control by linking the the career promotion of the local officials by linking it to their local economic performance now this is a very important institutional fact which is in contrast with the way India uh, treats its local officials now in a sense the system started in the earlier period now the earlier system remains but in the evaluation of local officials the weight of the economic performance has gone up much more but the system goes back to the earlier period. Then the foundation of a national system of basic scientific research and innovation. Even in 1980 spending on research and development as percent of GDP was higher in China than in most poor countries. Then an active fertility control policy even before the adoption of the drastic one-child policy in the late 70s. Last but not the least, something that I mentioned yesterday, large female labor participation and education which enhanced women's contribution to economic growth. All these are part of the socialist legacy. In respect of many of these, China's legacy of the earlier period has been much more distinctive than that of India. When I grew up in India, I used to hear leftists say, that the Chinese were better socialists than us. Now I'm used to hearing that the Chinese are better capitalists than us. (laughs) I tell people only half flippantly that the Chinese are better capitalists now, maybe because they were better socialists then. Some analysts find in China, and this is the second topic I mentioned, elements of the developmental state, a familiar idea from the earlier East Asian growth literature relating to South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, etc. And there are elements, uh, there, are fa- there is family resemblance. One, the financial system has been at the service of state directed industrial policy in China. Second, successful private companies in China like Huawei and Lenovo that I mentioned have benefited a great deal from their close ties with the government. Third, like in the rest of East Asia, export promotion combined with domestic technological capacity building and state encouragement of trial and experimentation in exploring dynamic comparative advantage, sometimes at the expense of static allocation efficiency has been at the core of the development strategy. So these are similarities, but there are also important differences. Number one, Because of a different history of evolution of the private sector that grew in the interstices of market reform in a socialist economy, the nature of embeddedness of the developmental bureaucracy was quite different in China. In contrast to the coordinated capitalism of Japan and South Korea, where the state presided over the coordination among private business conglomerates, the Chinese case can be and has been more aptly described as one of state-led capitalism from above and network or Guangxi capitalism from below to fit in the conditions of much weaker development of large private business in China. It's a large number of small family-based businesses forming clusters with informal credit and trade links among themselves and with the Chinese diaspora. Next, the issue of collaboration of private business with local officials also points to the substantial regional variations in the development of Chinese capitalism. And the state business relations are qualitatively different between say, large parts of coastal China and in the interior provinces. So in that respect, as you expect in a very large country, the state business relation had all different kinds of qualitative aspects which are of course missing in the earlier smaller East Asian cases. Let me skip those. In fact, in Huang's book, uh, he contrasts the private indigenous entrepreneurial model even in the coastal areas. uh, Entrepreneurial model of Zhejiang province with the state-led industrial policy of neighboring Shanghai. And then lastly, foreign investment has played a much more important role in China in technological and organizational upgrading and international marketing than in other East Asian countries. The Indian case has also been quite different from the East Asian developmental state. Private business houses of course have a long history and in the initial three decades they played a while they were influential in politics to some extent they played a relatively subsidiary role and the bureaucracy and the, st- and the private uh, business elite while the, their, their relation was quite often rather tortuous. So let me, let me and, and in a country of democratic politics too close a relation between state and business in any case would have been pro- uh, pro- politically suspect. Yet, compared to the past, in the last couple of decades the link between the political or bureaucratic leadership and business associations like CII or NASCOM on the matter of economic reform has been important in pushing the market principle and in slowly establishing the general hegemony of capital in the political culture. In fact now there's much more intermixing some of the bureaucrats children getting their training in the IIMs and the IITs, etc., they uh, be, now become important businessmen and so on. So there is much more of intermixing than used to be before. And these things are different in different parts of India again. Um, the incidence of link, such linkage between state and business has been stronger in some industries but not in others and some regions not in others. Different state governments have been business friendly to a different extent. In some regions, particularly West and South India, local connections between the upcoming new capitalists, many of them from agricultural castes, and political organizations and authorities flourished. I will give some examples, as in the case of the Kammas in Andhra Pradesh, Patidars in Gujarat, the Gounders and Naders in Tamil Nadu, these are successful agricultural castes who then uh, formed, they started forming the links to the local, the state government and then went to business and there's now a very strong link between the two. Now I come to the last topic where I am to spend some time, governance and accountability. Now whenever you mention accountability in this context, immediately the question that is always in the top in the people's mind, of course uh, accountability issues are different between China and India. China is an authoritarian state, uh, India by and large is a democratic state. However, the issue I think is much more complex. I will point to severe accountability failures in both countries. But let me first take this standard issue of democracy or authoritarianism and development. The dramatic success story of China has revived a hoary myth of how particularly in the initial stages of economic development, authoritarianism delivers much more than democracy. But the relationship between authoritarianism or democracy and development is not so simple in my judgment. Authoritarianism is neither necessary nor sufficient for economic development. That it is not necessary is illustrated by not only by today's industrial democracies but by scattered, case, scattered cases of recent development success, Costa Rica, Botswana, and now India. That it is not sufficient I think goes without saying. Um, now let me catalog If, I, since shortness of time I've just mentioned in a schematic form So democracy has some obvious advantages from the point of view of development. Democracies are better able able to avoid catastrophic mistakes like the Great Leap Forward, like the Cultural Revolution. The Great Leap Forward associated with the famine which killed 30 million people. Uh, The Cultural Revolution is probably the history's largest destruction of human capital at one go. And and after, after these mistakes democracy also makes it easier to heal, greater healing powers. Second issue, democracy makes for better capacity for managing conflicts, which in the long run enables a more stable political environment for development. India's democratic pluralism has provided the means of containing many, though it's very important to stress, not all social conflicts. A capacity which I am not sure China's homogenizing, monolithic state has so far acquired. Faced with a public crisis or political shock, the Chinese leadership, which is otherwise so pragmatic, has a tendency to overreact, suppress information, and act heavy-handedly, often unnecessarily heavy-handedly. Then democracies in general experience more intense pressure to share the benefits of development among the people and thus make the development uh, sustainable. Um, More checks on capitalist excesses of the kind that I mentioned. I also think that democracies provide, open societies provide a better environment for nurturing the development of information and related technologies, a matter of some importance in the current knowledge-driven global economy. Intensive cyber censorship in China, the Great Firewall, may seriously limit some forms of future innovations in this area. So these are examples of the way democracy helps development. I should stress that this is all looking at democracy as instrumental, but democracy has non-instrumental value as well. Democracy is, in my judgment, an end in itself. Some people even go to the other extreme of, for example, Amartya Sen has a book called Development as Freedom. So he defines development as freedom. So that's then definitionally democracy and development to come together. But I'm using it for argument's sake here, primarily is instrumental, you're in looking at democracy as an instrumental sense, but if I have to give up development, i would still retain democracy if I have to choose that. I hope I don't have to choose that. Now I'm going to show that India's experience suggests that democracy can also hinder development in a number of ways not usually considered by democracy enthusiasts. Point number one, competitive populism, which is short-run pandering and handouts to win elections. And this hurts long-term investment. This is a, one important aspect why, for example, infrastructure, which requires long-term investment, is so underdeveloped in India. Come election time, politicians will announce free water, <coughs> free electricity. And if you announce free electricity, who's going to invest in electricity when cost recovery is problematic? So it's not just public investment uh, because of populist subsidies, there's fiscal deficit, but also private investment is much more hesitant. So it really hurts long-run infrastructure, and as I mentioned yesterday, electricity, for example, lack of electricity hurts particularly the poor people, because the big people, big producers, have their own uh, power plants or generators. So, competitive, so in a sense, this is where populism hurts the majority of people. That, that's the uh, paradox in some sense. Next question that I want to mention, which is not often ma- uh, mentioned, is that one of the big things in China is the number of experiments China had succeeded in doing. This is uh, Deng Xiaoping's famous maxim, crossing the river, groping for the stones. If you think about some of the successful experiments in China, like the TVE's, the township and village enterprise which started in a small place and then gradually expanded. Similarly the household responsibility system in agriculture also started as an experiment in small, some areas then expanded. Now I'll, I'll just tell you an anecdote to, to illustrate this point. So around that in the early 90's the finance minister of West Bengal, the state I'm from happens to be a student of mine and the, uh, some of you know West Bengal is a communist government, communist party run within a democratic uh, system. So I told in the early 90s the finance minister and also a couple of other ministers, I said look, you are so admiring of China and China is doing this township and village enterprise which is succeeding, why don't you try some TVEs in rural areas in West Bengal just to try out how it works, the same principle. Immediately, these ministers told me, no way, don't, don't even mention it. I said, why? He said, look, you know what will happen in our political system. So if the experiment succeeds, fine. As soon as that project starts failing, these people, what will they do? They will come and surround us and will not let us go home until I make their jobs, we make their jobs permanent. So this soft budget issue, sometimes economists talk, talk about this, So politicians are afraid to carry out experiments because of the inevitable job losses and bailout pressures. The electoral consequences discourage them to experiment in the first place. So that's the second problem that I mentioned. And then I mentioned, let me not go into this, I'm actually currently working on this both theoretically and empirically, the issue of political clientelism. I'm actually giving a seminar on this uh, at LSE on this but quite often electoral politics in countries like India uh, encourage clientelistic uh, political clientelism essentially voter support in exchange of official disbursement of benefits what it harms is again long run public goods most of the clientelism, ben, clientelistic benefits are private goods so private goods giving out private goods to win elections uh, at the expense of long-run public investment again. Um, Let me skip some of this. Um, And of course there is the general case that democracy's slow decision-making processes can be costly in a world of fast-changing markets and technology. India's in India's extremely heterogeneous as I mentioned yesterday India is one of the world's most heterogeneous and conflict ridden societies the elite even the elite is highly divided so one of the big political economy problems of India uh, is that there are severe collective action problems in getting their act together in all everything in goal formulation in policy implementation in cooperative problem-solving efforts, etc. So, quite often they, so- they go for when they get they cannot get their act together, they grab whatever they can and in terms of short-run subsidies and, and handouts. In contrast, Chinese leadership has shown a lot more decisiveness and coherence in policy initiative and execution. This is not all due to an authoritarian setup. This may have something to do with the fact that collective action problems are le- somewhat less severe in China's more homogeneous society. Having said that, let me now qualify. It. The same disorderly processes of fractious pluralistic democracy that make decisiveness on the part of Indian leadership difficult make it more legitimate in the eyes of the people. The Chinese leadership on the other hand has to derive popular legitimacy from ensuring rapid economic growth and national glory. In fact some of you may remember in the last two years when the crisis, financial crisis started, even Chinese party newspapers started saying, oh if the growth rate falls below 8%, big trouble, the political regime, I can tell you if growth rate falls to 0% in India, it's bad in many respects but it is not regime threatening uh, because the source of legitimacy is different. Let me, I also talk about a delicate task for the Chinese leadership in search of legitimacy is to periodically stoke ultranationalist passions particularly in the internet fren- frenzy portraying any external criticism as a slur on national self-respect and yet to modulate them before they get out of control. If you ask me, in the next 10 years, one of biggest, China's biggest problems would be ultra-nationalism, that's my, in my judgment, and that will be har- harmful both for China and for the rest of the world. In India, democracy is brought about, and this is not recognized by people often outside India. Democracy has brought about a kind of social revolution in India. Centuries of oppression of many groups have still continued, but have been relaxed in a big way, and political awareness of these people have increased in a big way. And this is reflected in Indian politics. However, this has a downside also. For, while it is a very welcome fact from the socio-political angle, it has some um, downside in terms of governance issues. What it does quite often, this, the rise of the subordinate groups, while it does a great things for uh, the politics of dignity, <clears throat> it also eats away the insulation because for many, even within a democracy, you need certain decision-making, particularly long-term decision-making, you need certain insulation. In the economics literature, this comes up in different contexts. There's a literature on central bank independence, a whole lot of literature on credible commitment. You essentially need some mechanism of insulating the, some long-term decision-makers against, insulating against the willing dealing of day-to-day politics. But this insulation is getting eroded away in India, in, in, in as part which is a downside of the change. In fact, it is also affecting governance in some other ways. Some of the new social groups coming to power are even nonchalant in suggesting that all these years upper classes and castes have looted the state, now it is our turn. If in the process they trample upon some individual rights or some procedural aspects of democratic administration, the institutions that are supposed to kick in to restrain them are relatively weak. Highly corrupt politicians are regularly re-elected by their particular ethnic or local constituencies which they nurse assiduously even while fleecing the rest of the system. This is part of what I have called elsewhere a fundamental tension between the participatory aspects of democracy and the procedural aspects of democracy. And this is probably a fundamental dilemma of democratic governance in India. Of course ultimately the checks and balances of the ramshackle but still vibrant legal system kick in in India to carve undue excesses in a way that is rather rare in China. The Indian independent judiciary, particularly the upper echelons, the election commission, and a few of the regulatory bodies still function with some degree of insulation from political interference and hold up due process against great odds. And this institutional insulation, of course, is much weaker in China. And this is also helped by a much more active NGO movement in India which act as watchdogs against excesses uh, both of the state and of corporate business. Let me mention a little bit about decentralized governance. I I will be very brief, so I'll skip what I have on the slides. So, decentralization is something taken very seriously in both countries. Chinese decentralization, I think, is much deeper. India had a constitutional amendment at the beginning of the 90s. But if you ask me, looking back, except for three or four states, decentralization is not very effective in India. For various reasons, uh, part of it is local capture, part of it is uh, they're not enough um, expertise at the local level. In many villages, even double-entry bookkeeping is missing. Uh, so there is a lot of theft, uh, there's elementary audits are, away, are, are absent and so on. So a lot of simple expertise is also missing at the village level and so there is a lot of malfeasance at the at the, at the uh, village level more than that, what has happened state level politicians don't want to give up their power so in many states, the state government politicians come and hijack the process and essentially run the whole system through their own own people even though they are elected uh, so I would say to this day except for or four states, decentralization is not very effective. China, on the other hand, gave a lot of autonomy to the local officials. In fact, now they are having the downside of that, as I mentioned already, they are having difficulty in reining in the, the, uh, the, the local officials. And this is also particularly because of the particular way of rewarding local officials. In China, local officials have a lot more power than local officials in India yet the center controls them through the reward system promotion so you are a local official your promotion to the next level depends on how your local area has performed this has also an implication for corruption yes both countries are highly corrupt but I think This kind of reward system limits corruption by and large in in China for the simple reason is that your reward, your promotion depends on local area performance. So while you steal as an official but you don't steal so much that the local area goes down the drains because then your promotion is blocked. In India there is no such incentive in the promotion system of local bureaucrats and so this I think also makes a difference um, to the nature of corruption in the two countries and as I already mentioned the local government at the county level has a great deal of power unthinkable in India for example the local official decides about privatization state of state companies in regulatory approvals and patronage distribution in appointing local oversight committees against financial and other irregularities, local officials appoint judges, fixes their salaries, and public prosecutors and so on. Of course much of it is abused quite often but I just want to say how much more powerful local officials are and that of course has led to this collusion between local officials and commercial and uh, business interests. So central government is now having problems as I mentioned. Even when the local official is not venal, in an atmosphere of information control, the local official's usual inclination is to suppress bad news as it may adversely affect his chances of promotion or his reputation. That's why the central government quite often come to know about a problem too late or very late quite often because of this system. Over more than a quarter century now, the Chinese central leadership has however shown a remarkable adaptability to changing circumstances and capacity to mobilize new support coalitions to protect its political power. At the top level, it is much more professional now and less subject to the willing dealing and patronage distribution of the local fiefdoms, but it is still far from establishing a comprehensive rule-based system and institutionalizing a credible system of checks and balances. However, and this I want to stress, while it has installed a far more decisive and purposive governance structure than India, its weaker institutional checks and low capacity of conflict management make it actually more brittle in the face of a crisis than the messy-looking system in India for all its flaws. And I think this is a paradoxical statement uh, that I believe in. For all ostensible purposes, Chinese government looks stronger than the Indian government. But if you ask me, the Indian government is stronger. Uh, because, Even though it looks messy, because it, it, it is not as brittle, it has other social of legitimacy, it has uh, much more... Um, control over its um, much more access to information, much more many watchdog agencies and so on. Whereas in China, the chances of going off the rails in response to unexpected events are much larger. Organizations in the Chinese party, like Zhang Zubu, the Central Organization Department for Personnel Control, that carefully screen for loyalists in all major appointments, insulate the leadership from bad news, and thus delay corrective action. The leadership today is much more alert and sensitive to popular grievances than, say, in the days of the Great Leap Forward, when delayed on information caused disaster. But it has a chronic tendency, as I mentioned before, to overreact to crisis, to demonize normal dissent, and to act unnecessarily heavy-handedly, as I've also mentioned before. As the economy becomes more complex and social relations become more convoluted and intense, the absence of transparent and accountable processes and the attempts by what I call a control freak leadership to force lockstep conformity and discipline will generate over the years acute tension and informational inefficiency problem is in India is that while they, in India there's lot more institutionalized outlets for letting off steam it also for various historical social reasons has more of ethnic and religious tensions and centrifugal forces to grapple with. India's appalling governance structure for delivery of social services, I already talked about the appalling health and education delivery in India yesterday, its inability to carry out collective action or to overcome populist hindrances to long-term investment or to address the infrastructural deficit that is reaching crisis proportions, its over politicized administration and decision-making processes, its clogged courts and corrupt police and patronage politics frequently making a mockery of the rule of law for common people will continue to hobble the process of economic growth and alleviation of its still massive poverty. So let me end here with a bit of banality. While both China and India have done much better in the last quarter century than they had in the last 200 years in the matter of economic growth, and while the polity of both has shown a remarkable degree of resilience in their own ways one should not underestimate their structural weaknesses and the great deal of social and political uncertainties that cloud the horizons for these two giant countries and those refer to the feet of clay in the title of my book Awakening Giants Feet of Clay. Thank you.
0: I trust, are these working, these mics? Can you hear me in the back? Thank you. Um, now, we have um, uh, 25 minutes or so for discussion. Uh, thank you, Pranab, for a, a very thoughtful uh, analysis um, of the institutional, political, social relationships underlying the uh, e- economy and the economic growth and the economic tensions. And um, what I would like to do is to take uh, two or three questions at a time and then ask um, Pranab to respond. Uh, Gentleman in the front row here.
2: Thank you very much once again, Professor, friends and comrades here and present. I've benefited tremendously, as indeed I did yesterday. My question is very simple and direct you have excellently identified the major weaknesses that are associated with the, with the governments of both India and China. All of us recognize that these two countries have an extremely large number of scholars in the major Western countries such as the United States, the U.K., Canada, Australia, ETC, ETC. obviously, their ability to encounter concepts such as governance and um, many other aspects related thereto. Uh, okay, the, uh, the fact that these students encounter these concepts at a deep level, with a view to ensuring that these the, the knowledge they acquire is applied toward solving the problems that they have. Okay, what do you anticipate in terms of uh, the impact of this knowledge in terms of uh, its application in both China and India, especially in China? Because obviously India has had a tremendous... Uh, Contact with uh, the Western countries, but China, China's contact with the West has been, I mean, is relatively much, much fresher. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much. Let, let's take two or three questions, and uh, please don't refer to LSE's long tradition of um, exporting political instability. Uh, <laughs> um, please.
2: Thank you, Professor Bardan. Um, I was wondering. You mentioned that uh, democracies are generally better equipped to manage conflict, and I was wondering if you could flesh out that conclusion in more detail. Because I'm thinking about the case of India, where I would argue that India has been, um, you know, has been unable to manage its conflict in Maoist regions, or East Assamese regions, or or even in Kashmir. So I was wondering if you could flesh that conclusion out in more detail. Thank you.
0: Um, one more, and then I'll turn to Robert. Thanks. I would also underline the the naxalite question. India has a rural insurgency covering something like 40% of the land area, and so there's a question of how that fits in with your argument. But my question actually is about um, whether you think that the World Bank's revisions to the GDP of both China and India, the recent revisions to reduce them by 38%, 38% and to increase the number of people in extreme poverty in both India and China by hundreds of millions of people, whether this um, well, how you react to these revisions, whether these revisions in any way qualify your picture of the economic performance of the two countries
1: Okay um, the impact of knowledge acquired outside Um, on issues like governance I think the solutions the problems as well as the solutions are largely domestic so there are many people who may not have even come abroad either from China or from India but they have a pretty good idea what needs to be done quite often that it is not done has less to do with their not knowing that what to be, what is to be done It is more because the politics is such that it makes it more difficult the local politics is such it makes it difficult sometimes we may have a ready-made solutions in our mind but we cannot implement it so while yes outside knowledge is quite often useful particularly technical knowledge but since you were talking about governance yes even in governance I think there are many issues on which uh, knowledge acquired abroad is useful but I would say that is to me at least secondary compared to the more, more uh, difficult problems that those countries have to face within their countries so I would not uh, uh, I would not de-emphasize the knowledge acquired abroad uh, but, but, uh, but in, th- in the case of China particularly where the impact to the west is more recent you see already in the big change internet has done in in, in, in in China. Now, of course, internet um, uh, is much larger in, in terms of people who look at internet, uh, much larger in, in uh, China than in the United States. And I think internet has become both a positive and a negative force. Uh, positive in the sense of, I think, things that were not possible to do in terms of rights and freedom are somewhat getting relaxed. Uh, And partly because of pressure of these people who are in touch with much of the rest of the world in spite of all the uh, cyber censorship. But the negative thing is that I've seen and I've referred to the internet frenzy, how easy it is to whip up ultra-nationalist frenzy through the internet. And I could give you many examples of this in China. Uh, I I wrote a piece, uh, op-ed piece uh, uh, last year on the the, the ugly face of ultra-nationalism in Asia, both in China and in India and in some other countries. Uh, And I give some examples there. Let me move on to the issue of conflicts. Now, in fact, that is the reason I did emphasize in my talk, uh, obviously I didn't have time to go into this, I said manage large number of conflicts, but not all. And again, I'm looking at the several decades, not just in the last 10 years. Now, there are many conflicts. Why noxialite? India has not succeeded in, in managing conflicts in Kashmir, In India has not succeeded in managing many of the conflicts in the Northeast. Uh, so those conflicts have been simmering for quite some time and the noxialite thing uh, was there in the 70's, then it, it subsided and then it's come up again. Now essentially this has to do with something that I mentioned yesterday it has to do with extreme poverty and inequality and uh, abysmal delivery of social services. Now in areas where delivery of social services are better you see this you, you less. Of course other things also matter in the areas where the noxalite rebellion is more active are also inaccessible areas, so it's more difficult to control on the part of the government. But the government takes too easily, uh, particularly state governments involved, too easily they take the police solution or the military solution. Now of course the, it's very easy for me to say, of course the, the solution has to be political, solution has to be economic to deliver, but it's not that easy to do. However, if you look at the last 60 years, this is the 60 years, years of the Indian Republic. Last 60 years, as I mentioned yesterday, two particular social groups have suffered most uh, in terms of both discrimination, in terms of deprivation of social services. One are the what Indians call adivasis, which means indigenous people, the tribals. That's where the Nakshalite rebellions are coming up. In fact, if you look, look at most indicators, in most respect they are the worst uh, deprived and the other is some sections not all, some sections of the Muslim community I would say they are suffering more than even the what used to be known as the ex-untouchable castes and some of those castes have now politically become more powerful now issue is that in the areas of the Noxalite rebellion there is another problem not merely it's They have been deprived for ages. Not merely it's difficult to reach out, governance is not that easy to render in such inaccessible places. The third factor is that these areas sit on valuable mining deposits. So now, apart from government ruthlessness, police brutality, something else is happening. Thugs employed by the corporate oligarchy that I was referring to, their thugs beat up many of these tribals. And they're rising <coughs> in rebellion against the corporate oligarchy who are trying to you know, um, uh, destroy the forests, um, uh, you know, overmine the, 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 the for natural resources. Their, their traditional rights on the forests, rights on the uh, land, uh, they're being completely uh, ignored uh, and, uh, and, and ra- uh, they're riding roughshod over. So this is a complicated problem. And I'm not saying that democracy will solve all of these problems. Ultimately, I think it has democracy. It has to work through democracy to involve these people in the local democratic process, which is they have not been involved. But look at steps. The, in, in the case of the, some of the states in the last 10 years, newly made states, Jharkhand, Chhattisgarh, there are other states as well, but take these two states. These are mostly the very substantial population is the Adivasis or the indigenous people. Now, many of the indigenous people's parties control those states. But they have become, in some cases, hand in glove with these thugs and the corporate mafia. And so poor people are quite often, poor uh, indigenous people quite often disillusioned by these governments. So democracy will not easily solve the problem, but it will take time because over time even uh, there are there are at least this is my hope that there are processes within democracy that will make people more aware, more alert. Unfortunately and this is something that I would say on the other side as well the noxialites are not helping in many cases there are many instances I could cite you, noxialites <clears throat> in many areas act as extortion rackets. They are ex- In fact the corporate mafia in some cases working with the noxialites because they pay them a tribute and that is provide buys the guns of the noxialites so it's a very complicated thing but my point is quite different my point is comparative look at the corresponding ethnic conflicts in China the Tibetans and the Uyghurs and that is the slightest movement for, rel- for autonomy they are not asking for revolution they are asking for more autonomous powers. Immediately the Chinese government brutally suppressed them. And, uh, and of course it says it's problem caused by the West, it's co- problem caused by the Hollywood. But India, at least that level of conflict, has managed much better. The level of Tibetan conflict, Uyghur conflict uh, in, uh, in China, India has managed much worse conflicts over the last 60 years but India has not managed all the conflicts. In fact, uh, the the conflicts that I mentioned, both in Kashmir, Northeast, and in the the Maoist rebellion cases, uh, are tough. But it does not, in comparison with China, it does not show India's incapacity to manage conflicts. That's that's the point that I'm trying to make. It's a relative point, not an absolute point. Third issue that um, Robert raised, Hmm. the World Bank revision, yes, I've looked at those, in fact, if I may again plug my book a little bit, um, in 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 my book there's a chapter. Um, uh, by the way, the book is uh, is not primarily meant for uh, it's not just for economists. It's meant for a general readership. So I did not go into much of the technicalities, but there is an appendix. There's a chapter on economic growth and reform. There's an appendix to that chapter. Uh, the title of the appendix is are these high growth rates real? Both countries, not just in in, in India or China, both countries. And then I talk about the different doubts that have come up in the process of data. However, on the World Bank thing, I do have a couple of lines there. I mentioned that, yes, the World Bank number, the new numbers have brought down the absolute and therefore the poverty numbers have gone up. But one is not sure yet whether the growth rate numbers will be affected because that bringing down affects both the initial period as well as the later period. So I have not seen a study which gives us how much of a growth rate effect it will have. It will have effect on the absolute level of poverty. So similarly, how much effect will it have on inequality is also not clear. But yes, there will be some significant effect and, um, and I, 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 I certainly say that that's a major change and this by the way those who are not familiar with it this change is because of the different price deflator used I talked about purchasing power parity the purchasing power parity uh, that is used has been revised with the 2005 survey China actually did not have a survey at all in the earlier case for the first time china had this service so it's been incorporated in this data but then that is not the only deflator problem in my appendix i show there are others probably more major price deflator problem in national income accounting particularly in china but india also the india deflator problem is because india has a large uh, not just deflator problem there are other problems india's major data problem in this in these accounts and that I I think affects the growth rate as well, is that India's growth, as I discussed yesterday, many people think is service sector growth, but 60% of the service sector income, to this day, is in the informal sector, and we don't have enough accounts of the informal sector. So how do the National Income Office do? Essentially, they have some benchmarks, so they project. So if you project on the basis of 60% of which is informal, on which you don't have enough data, and then say this is the sector which is g- driving growth I'm always a little suspicious of that. TN Srinivasan has written a, a very uh, meticulous article on this the service sector deflator, service sector accounting, but I've asked TN, he also said, but having looked at all these problems I cannot say yet whether it will affect the growth rate because some of these effects will also go in the initial period as well as the last period. So we don't know yet how much of the growth rate will be affected. But there are lots of problems with data. China has an additional problem. Additional problem is there is built-in incentive to over-report. Because the local officials are rewarded on the basis of how the local area has performed, so the local officials, in reporting statistics, so Chinese statistical office is very much aware of this now. So they quite often try to discount some of the reports they get. Uh, because local officials we have a tendency to over-report. This is a, a built-in incentive problem in data reporting. There are hundreds of such data problems. So all these growth rate figures, all these um, you know, poverty figures, all of them uh, I think should take with some grain of salt. They are not completely false because there are some outside checks. For example, one growth rate check people can make is uh, looking at electricity use. So they're not completely out of line. But some people think that the Chinese growth rate are overstated by about 2%. But I haven't seen too many accounts of much more than that. Let me stop. Thanks. That's it.
0: Yeah, there the are two areas I'd like you to comment on. One is international relations and second is the position of women in the two countries. China when it started an economic reform was well, more or less loggerhead with all its neighbors and it seemed to have come to an agreement between them while we don't observe similar success in India. The second is that there is a striking difference in the position of women in terms of participation in the labor market and in terms of education. So, I'd like you to comment on these two
1: areas. Um, the second point suggests to me that, uh, Athar, you didn't probably come to yesterday because I, I did spend quite a bit of time on that. In fact, uh, let me just then tell you what on inequality, my major results that I mentioned yesterday is that in terms of inequality of income, in terms of inequality of opportunities, like in land distribution, in, um, in education, inequality is much worse in India than in China. Gender inequality I discussed, in fact, in some detail. Uh, gender inequality is mixed. Gender inequality is much worse in China, in simple demographic sense, the number of boys, <coughs> the number of girls, much, much worse, not just a little bit worse. I actually showed a map yesterday of the regional differences between China and different regions of China and different regions of India Uh, so in terms of that simple demographic fact of number of girls uh, per uh, per boys uh, gender inequality is worse but then I did mention if you take even two crude estimates of female literacy and female participation if you take these two uh, gender inequality is much worse in India than in China so it's Overall, I'd say the gender picture is mixed. On foreign relations, I'm not a foreign relation expert. Um, I, my, all of my talk, the whole of, 100% of my talk related to really the economy, um, India's relations with um, uh, India's South Asian neighbors. is much to be desired. It's probably not all the fault is on one side. I think the fault is on all sides. But of course, India being a big country uh, should bear much of the blame. Um, uh, at the same time, I would not claim that uh, that uh, uh, holiness on the part of China as well. China has not been always very, very um, uh, very, very uh, healthy relation with some of its neighbors. China fought uh, not merely a war with India, but fought a war with Vietnam. Um, by the way, when I, every time I've been to China, the issue came up. Most of my friends did not know that there was a China-Vietnam war. Most of my faculty, I'm not talking about common people, faculty people did not know that China fought a war with Vietnam. And then there are border problems with many other countries, um, I mean, not just the j- islands in Japan, etc. There are claims in the, south, the, 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 the ocean and so on. But this is not an area of my expertise. I'm an average newspaper reader, like many of you. My impression is yes, both countries have a lot to do in improving uh, relations. And there's also an issue of vested interest. Even when foreign relations otherwise are bad, things improve when economic relations improve. China, because of the economic success, lot more countries are interested in trading with China. And even India, India with not a good, so, so good a relationship with China, China is now what, the second largest trader with India. Because it's unbalanced. It's more Chinese exports to India than Indian exports to China. So over time, I think these things hopefully will ease. I hope things will improve in South Asia because there's a lot of trade opportunities that have been denied for decades in South Asia because of bad relations between the uh, between the countries. thank
0: you, thank you, Pranab. Um, you, your description of the Chinese Communist Party, that is increasingly divorced from its peasant and worker roots, suggests uh, an autocratic elite that is self-selecting. Do you think such is, is that accurate? Do you think such a group can an organization can remain in power? And how do you think it's likely to change? I just I just want to get the last questions in. Sure. To the gentleman over there. Um, much is made of journalism in China and press freedom or lack of, but I was wondering if you could comment...
1: Sorry, I missed what you said.
0: Much is made of uh, journalism in China and press freedom, lack of. I was wondering if you could comment on the media infrastructure in India, uh, who controls it and whose interests it works for, and whether you think it uh, lubricates or undermines some of the political economic issues you've discussed. Thank you. Right. I think the last question, is this. Journey.
2: Um, if we set aside the issue of data and look at institutions and processes like much of uh, today's talk focused on, then how easy is it for a researcher such as yourself to uh, access or observe or conduct field work firsthand and therefore sort of verify uh, the kind of knowledge between,
1: uh, which exists between the two countries? I.e., is it verifiable? And has that evolved over the last uh, few decades? <coughs> I missed, when you said between the two countries or you're talking about inside these two countries? Sorry, I mean I mean a comparison between the two countries, i.e. Oh, can sorry. we verify or conduct field work okay. um, On Jean-Paul's question, future I really don't know, but uh, um, uh, I have a, the longest chapter in the book is about the future though it's because I don't know so uh, <laughs> uh, so I had to bit around the bush as it were um, but uh, so essentially, what you do when you don't know about the future, essentially you look at the past and see whether you see some pointers. Now, in the case of China, I think it's complicated. Yes, in one sense, it's this self selected elite um, choosing itself, and now there's a in cahoots with the, the, politi- the politicians also choose, are, are also the. In fact, I've seen some data which I probably mentioned in the book, but I didn't mention it today here. There is a document of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences in 2007 that took account of the how many Chinese, resident Chinese uh, in mainland China, how many of these Chinese have more than 100 million yuan wealth. That's about 14 million dollars. And the total number, if I remember right, is something like 3500, of which Nearly 3,000 are relatives of the party officials. So even if you take it with a pinch of salt, it's a huge number. But that tells you a kind of party mafia, if you like me, if to, is controlling. And they have the authoritarian power, so they can uh, control much more easily. Having said that, let me say, and I think I tried to indicate that in my talk as well, The Chinese government is an extremely pragmatic, smart organization. So what they do, so suppose there is some malfeasance in some area comes up, in fact there have been, I did not mention it, it's in my book, I discuss it quite a lot, is there has been many instances of unrest, rural unrest in in China. You just see how the Chinese government tackles that, so what they do, they immediately block that area, so that news doesn't spread too much to the other areas, Okay, having blocked it, they punish the agitators severely, so that there's a lesson for the future, and then they punish the local officials, so that other people, who did not agitate, but were kind of disgruntled, tell them, look, I'm, we are punishing them. So in fact, most opinion polls, which I've looked at, most opinion polls show The local officials are extremely unpopular in many areas, but central officials are still popular in those opinion polls because they do it in a very smart way. My problem is, something that I emphasized, is that smartness will have limits when you you are not controlling the information because the information quite often comes to you quite late. So let me give you the incident. You could give the incident, the SARS epidemic. But more recently, there was this, many of you know probably, I've read in the newspapers, the milk, the dairy scandal in which the the, the milk was tainted. This was in, I I, I read an interview of some of the journalists in, in China. They knew about it all the time, of the milk tainting. So they went and warned their friends and relatives don't drink that milk. But they did not write about it. They would have written it other times, but because the Olympics were coming, this is not the time to slur anything, uh, any, any put any uh, stain on the government's reputation or anything. And as a result, more than three hundred thousand children got sick. The New York Times correspondent interviewed one of these journalists who knew all along. Didn't know who, what the answer was. The answer was. Oh, we did not say to in, in public, in order to keep the harmonious society, the society harmonious, because that's the slogan, harmonious society of the Chinese leaders. So, and the Chinese central leaders came to Norbit much later. And of course, Olympics, with Olympics, they probably were suppressed anyway. This is where, you know, this, this creating this national image, so that it's not sullied by bad news, India is the opposite. India is so messy that you get to know about the big mess so you get an exaggerated opinion sometimes because the mess is is happening. Many years back uh, a, a friend economist who's, who's, uh, who's uh, passed away, whom you probably know, Raj Krishna did you know? Raj Krishna once told me, even at that time, this is 25 years back, he told me, you know, whenever I compare China and India, the image to me is that uh, these two countries are giving birth to a baby the baby is called development so the India mother India gives birth to the birth the baby of the development, we see the gory mess, it gives birth in public in China the, the birth takes place away somewhere, then you clean up the baby give it a good bathing and some, and then produce its sanitized baby in front of uh, in front of the public which to me is a colourful image, <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, so but the Chinese management skills I think are quite to this day, except for this information issue and, and those issues. So I don't think immediately something will happen, but again one I cannot predict because as I said, they have a tendency; they're pragmatic all the time. Suddenly go off the rails. So one cannot a prediction is even more. Difficult. On the issue, since I've talked about journalism, uh, the, in, uh, media in India, media in India has serious problems. I mean, of course, media still a lot more, lot freer than in China. No question about that. It's a highly, uh, I mean, it's um, uh, highly active uh, media and plays a very important role uh, in 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 the public discussion. No doubt about it. I'm worried about um, a couple of things. One is its ownership, as you were hinting at, corporate ownership. In fact, I mentioned the grip of the corporate oligarchy. I included media there. So, for example, I have been told by journalists that they, are, they have to restrain themselves when it comes to digging into the uh, cupboard of the skeletons in the cupboard of some big corporate houses. This is just a hearsay. I don't know how that, uh, that is true. However, the good side of it is competitive journalism. So, if one media house decides to cover up something, there will be somebody just in competition will come up with something else. This has happened, by the way, in the United States always. United States co- corporate oligarchy's grip on the media is quite large, probably even more than in India. But it's the competitive nature of the journalism that is a act as a kind of a check. It's not a hundred percent check, but it, it is a kind of a check. But I, I am worried about the corporate media's grip on the media in India. The other worry is that is there is a big gap between the English speaking, uh, English uh, magazines, newspapers and TV and the local, local. Because the English media which is what you and I usually get exposed to and the very influential uh, upper middle class in India get exposed to they essentially uh, report sensational things which are of, of interest only to the upper class so quite often things that are happening in the distant rural places do not get reported so in that sense um, the uh, the uh, even, even in Naxalite. Rebellion, going back to the Naxalite rebellion, the recent incident of uh, 70, more than 70 policemen killed by the, the Naxal rebels. Uh, it was, you know, this is a big sensational event in any country, but it was, you know, jostling for space because at the same time, two celebrities, one a Pakistan cricketer and another an Indian tennis player, were getting married. So. It was a big problem. So they, one time they will talk about the policeman getting killed, and soon the policeman killing went to the second page, you know, in the later pages. The Miza uh, marriage is, is the biggest uh, event. That's one, one, uh, 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 that's one way of the relations I hope will improve. <laughs> but, um, so that is the other issue, that the concentration of upper middle class issues in the English media And uh, whereas the local media is quite different quite often. But again, there are ownership issues there. Last issue is about the data. I can tell you about the data. I've done lots of field work. And even now, I'm carrying out uh, several field projects in India. Uh, So uh, I would say that I'm more comfortable with the Indian data uh, issues. In India, there is tremendous examination of data reliability. Apart from these micro field surveys, like him like who studied Palanpur village um, there also in the macro data there's a lot more examination in the media uh, in, the, in the technical media etc and, and also in the business newspapers there's a lot of analysis. I don't know enough how much of analytical examination takes place of the data uh, in China and field data in China I'm less familiar with because mo- by the way most of the data that I report in my book and also in my talk are not my data for China. Uh, essentially, it's collected from others. Uh, I don't speak the Chinese language, so I don't claim to have <coughs> field level knowledge in China. But uh, over time, I have been told that the data quality is improving. There was a time, t- even 20 years back, if you tried to do field studies, almost impossible in many areas. Even economic anthropological studies, many questions you could not ask. But now you can in some, some cases. I referred to yesterday, a study by a Harvard team of sociologists about the impact of inequality in rural areas and its link with unrest. And that study, for example, goes detailed into the household survey. So it's improving, but nowhere near India. India's data situation is much better um, from the field data point of view.
0: Thank you very much Pranab we have to stop there now um, signings uh, for a few minutes downstairs and then for more minutes upstairs reception on the eighth floor could I ask you to thank Pranab for a very thoughtful lecture and some very interesting answers. Thank you.